a voluptuous size Joe Scazzari treat. Snap good, spot down, Walsh's kick is up! I'm deeply, deeply cultured. lifting specialist around. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Oh, you said something nice, And it is no good. He missed it. Are you kidding me? High fly ball into right field. She is gone. This could be the most dramatic story of the season. It's Torres. Oh, the Like fears are often just an illusion. Today, as your baby brother goes into the hall, you need to know you're my hero. Wow. July 10th, uh, four days after the huge Stanley Cup final victory for the Tampa Bay Lightning, the first repeat champion since the 2015 and 16 Pittsburgh Penguins, and of course before that, the 1997-98 Red Wings. Um, before we jump into that, which is big news, uh, the NBA Finals as well, which we will be covering today, and of course, our lovely mailbag in the second half of the show. Um, but before we get to that, producer Jake, the Dirk Nowitzki of our podcast, as always, and our lovely, lovely sponsors, the Bull Barbecue Pit on St. Clair Avenue West, uh, Chef Omar and staff give a unforgettable experience along with mouth-watering barbecue using fresh local produce and kicking serious butt in the process. Uh, Uber Eats available in the surrounding Dufferin and St. Clair area. Uh, but go ahead and pick up that smoky onion dip even if you don't live in the area. It is very much worth it. Of course, known for their redonkadonk sandwich which aired on Food Network's You Gotta Eat Here, which is a crowning achievement um, for owner and chef Omar and staff and General Tech Automotive. We trust them with our cars, and so should you. Tala and family uh, will give you fantastic, speedy, and quality service near Yorkdale Mall and the Orphis Outlets at 1277 Caledonia Road. Just tell them you know the boys at Six Man. Uh, joining me today is a familiar, familiar voice, and that's Toby Kerr. Uh, welcome back to the show, my friend. Joe, my friend, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, so before we, before we jump into this wild Stanley Cup final, I have to talk about the Nikita Kucherov press conference. This man... Huh. This man is a treasure. He's a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. And I'll leave it at that. I know Montreal fans are, are not happy with that press conference. Might have offended our neighbors to the north a little bit, uh, our French-Canadian neighbors. But I got to say, I laughed from start to finish. And uh, it was kind of nice to see a hockey player have a personality for once. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. I would hope that I, – I don't really actually know how Montreal fans have reacted to it, but I would hope they would laugh about it too. I mean, if it was about the Maple Leaf, if it was about your Red Wings, I would think that uh, it, it's it's just hilarious. I mean, it's pure joy coming from that guy. 
they won. They won so easily also. Like, it wasn't a competitive series at all. I don't think you can get all that upset. I mean, I, I just thought that was amazing stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, answering every question with Schwartz's Deli is cafeteria food. I got to say, as, as one of the biggest fans of Schwartz's Deli in the world, I was even a bit offended by that. But, of course, it was hilarious, and, uh, and I did appreciate it. I, I, I enjoyed that press conference. Probably the only post-game presser of a Stanley Cup final I've ever enjoyed. Um, so thank you, Nikita, for, for your wonderful personality and never change. Now on to the series. Uh, Should I change my fantasy hockey team name to Schwartz's deli is cafeteria food. (laughs) I think I'm going to. (laughs) That's pretty good. Um, Well, it's just, it's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. How funny that was, but, uh, yeah, let's hear it. Joe is, uh, is another one, but look, I, Agree. This was not a competitive series whatsoever. I think we expected, you know, maybe a little bit of the unexpected just because of Montreal's t- t- trajectory into getting to this point. Um, but here we are, a five-game series probably could have been a four-game series. What are your thoughts on the Tampa Bay Lightning? Because right now they're close to be typically crowned as a dynasty in the classic sense of the word, you know, but of course they got swept two years ago by the, uh, excuse me, three years ago by the Columbus blue jackets. So, but even that team, which won a president's trophy was, was easily a finals favorite as well that year. They've been basically the favorite to win the Stanley cup three years in a row. They've won two of those three years twice in nine months, and they've only lost six postseason games in regulation uh, in that three-year span, six, including three, or two, excuse me, to Columbus after being outscored 19 to eight in that series. Is this just pure domination? Is this team just perfect? I really don't know what else to say anymore. Well, I mean, last show, you and I went over how sustainable they are in that everybody important is back next year, and everyone... (laughs) Important is locked up long-term except Braden Point. Um, and so there's really no reason to think they're going anywhere. But actually, I think, and this really you know, crystallized for me watching Game 5, that the scariest part of their whole dynasty or potential dynasty, because I think there's an argument. I mean, I, I don't give them much credit for, for a year where they win the President's Trophy but don't actually go far in the playoffs. But, you know, if they win a third cup even in the next few years, I think as far as modern dynasties go, you look at the Kings, the Blackhawks, uh, of course, you know, the Penguins as well, if you count that, two games. I think I think three is that much more impressive, and doing it spaced out a little bit more, to me, is actually that much more impressive. So I'd like to see them win a third. But I think that they will, and the biggest reason why is actually Vasilevsky, I think. He's the most terrifying part. Like, Joe, he is... I, I do agree with Kucherov also in the press conference that Vasilevsky should have won the Vesna. You and I have both said that, and I strongly believe that he really should have, as much as I love Marc-Andre Fleury. So I guess yes. that he's probably setting up to be, you know, a, a Martin Brodeur in New Jersey figure where even if they sag off offensively, if they have injuries, if they have trouble developing some of the types of players that they have to this point, you know, if the stars fall off, I think Vasilevsky is going to keep them competitive for a very long time in the foreseeable future. He is, I, I've been reading about his background too. Like he's one of those guys who was, 
you know, from the from a young, young age, he knew he wanted to be a goaltender at the highest level. He's worked his whole life to do it. He is just uh, unbelievably devoted. The guy who gets there hours before everyone else to stretch and, and take care of his body in the right ways. Like, there's just no reason to think that this guy isn't going to be a Vesna contender for at least the next five years. So I think that's the scariest part. I have everything else. You said they're perfect, right? Like, Hedman could be a Norris winner every year for the next five years, too. Would that shock you? I mean, yes, but he could be a finalist. Uh, and I think that uh, there, there's just, it's a pretty terrifying prospect. Because even trying to think about the way those Penguins team were, like, sure, they were scary because they had Crosby and Malkin, but they didn't, they weren't as complete, I would argue, as this team. Uh, no, not at all. No. Yeah, and, and the, the Kings offense was never as scary as this even though they had the goaltending. And I don't think the Blackhawks were ever as well-rounded as this. I think this could definitely be the defining uh, dynasty of the 21st century so far. I think we still need to get there, and maybe we're jumping ahead, but I've never seen a team so well set up after winning two straight. I don't think you're jumping ahead at all. Uh, to extend on Vasilevsky's point, a 937 save percentage over the entire postseason this year, which is a top-five postseason save percentage in the history of hockey, uh, to put it in perspective, how dominant he truly was. They did it against, like we say, uh, or like we have said, excuse me, the Florida Panthers, who have the Selkie Trophy winner on their team. They did it against the Carolina Hurricanes, who have one of the best lines in all of hockey and one of the best groups of defense core in all of hockey. They did it against the New York Islanders, they did it in a way where they would win one nothing in Game 7 or win 8 nothing in Game 5. Um, and, and now they're doing it in a way where they are 14-0 and 0 in the last three seasons after losing a playoff game. They have responded every single time. And in those 14 games, Andre Vasilevsky has six shutouts and has a save percentage, excuse me, of 946. It is silly how good those numbers are for this goaltender. Uh, a nine, uh, excuse me, a one four six goals against. I think in in the last two series of this postseason, I'll have to confirm. But that is just silly to have a nine thirty seven yeah. save percentage in twenty three playoff games. It's pretty unbelievable, and in fourteen hundred playoff minutes. Uh, he had given up only 40 goals in 1,400 minutes. Uh, 44 goals, excuse me. 655 saves. And he had a true shot save percentage of 30.79, which is, again, an incredible, incredible accomplishment for him. And you're right. As long as he's in net, I am making them the cup favorite every single year unless the roster in front of him completely evaporates, which is, again, not the case. Uh, we'll get into salaries in a minute. But let's talk Montreal for a second. Where are you on the Montreal Canadiens then? Because I think there's a lot to be desired in terms of the future of this team, but I think the future is bright if they play their cards right. What's your gauge on Montreal well, my thought right away on Montreal, because you're not the first one to ask me, but it, it, I mean, credit to you. I don't want to steal your thunder here, but you called me, I think, the day after the cup final. And you're like, I don't know if Montreal is going to make the playoffs next year. 
And at first I was thinking, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? What a magical run. And then you think about how that division's going to look when they realign next year, presumably, uh, with the border uh, presumably being all open and stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I think that Montreal is going to be fighting for a playoff spot next year. I think that the Caulfield-Suzuki thing is very exciting. I think that the defense core is very good at the top four anyway, though they're not getting any younger. At least Petrie and Weber aren't. Um, and Price certainly isn't either. It's just, it's just, I think that their season next year is going to depend on, on whether Price that we saw in these playoffs is sort of him finding his form again and he's going to be back, or if we see more of the injuries and some inconsistencies, slumps at times that have plagued him over the last few years in the regular season. Was this him just mustering the last of what he had, or is this him finding a late career resurgence? I think that's going to be the whole key to next year. They're clearly not going to be a pushover team, but as you say, they barely finished ahead of the Ottawa Senators in the end last year. The Ottawa Senators played better in the second half of the season. I mean, they're, they're, they're not a lock for the playoffs, and uh, I think that the expectations just dive right back down for them, frankly, that even a single playoff series win next year would in some ways, uh, be a victory, as amazing as that is. And I'm afraid that there's going to be uh, a lot of Montreal fans who are going to have trouble accepting that perspective, that this was a magical run, but, uh, oh boy, would I be double-floored if they come close to repeating it next season. I would be, well, I mean, at that point, it, would, it wouldn't be, uh, quote-unquote, a fluke anymore, although I don't believe this was a fluke in any way, shape, or form. I want to make that clear. But it could not uh, be a fluke, but also not be sustainable, I think. And I think yes, exactly. I think those are two different things, and and that's what that's what I want to make clear is that the sustainability part of their run is is what's at question here. Whether or not what they did this year was a fluke, absolutely not. It wasn't a fluke. I mean, we saw it even in the Cup final. Two of their four losses were extremely close games. So, I mean, they fought hard. They hung in there, but them losing to a team that literally dominated the entire league as is no reflection as to how they played this postseason. So I want to get that out of the way as well as Mark Bergevin. Um, we've been extremely critical of him on this show. Me, especially, I mean, I've been, I've been the leader of the Mark Bergevin is overrated brigade. And after watching what this team did this year, it's hard for me to, to criticize the guy anymore judging by some of the moves he made and how bad they were, but he recovered on almost all of them by making moves to change that. Um, you know, Alex Galchenyuk who had fallen out of favor there turned into Max Stoney, right? And we saw Galchenyuk on the Leafs this season play abhorrently in the playoffs and so bad that he gave the turnover on, on the game winning uh, uh, goal in overtime, uh, in the game five loss or game six loss, I'm not sure. I think game five of their series this year. Galchenyuk turns to Max Domi. Max Domi has that one season uh, with Montreal that looks pretty promising, but ultimately falls off a cliff. And instead of waiting around and hoping Max Domi would succeed, he flips him to the Columbus Blue Jackets, for who is now Josh Anderson. And I think Josh Anderson, for all accounts, was a net positive this postseason. He was all over the ice. He caused problems everywhere. He made a lot of plays. He was good defensively. He scored some nice goals. Um, 
I mean, he does make, I think, too much money over way too long of a contract, but he's still 26 years old. So I think Josh Anderson has become a positive from the negatives of his previous moves. I mean, he was able to to recover from that. Um, yeah, I mean, the Sergachev deal, listen, you can't win them all. You really can't. Uh, although that is the worst deal I think I might have ever seen. But you can't win them all. And, and, and of course, the Shea Weber-PK Subban deal, who I, at the time, lost my mind. I mean, you just traded a young defenseman who is in Norris voting for four years in a row, won a Norris, may I add, Mm -hmm. uh, in his time with Montreal, won a Norris in a Montreal jersey, and was was, uh, consequently traded to Montreal for Shea Weber. And at the time, I was floored. Uh, Shea Weber, who makes more money, who's older, right, maybe has one or two years less on his respective deal. Um, But look at where we are. Shea Weber was the number one defenseman on a Stanley Cup appearing team. And P.K. Subban was given to the New Jersey Devils because the National Predators really couldn't justify paying him for what he was producing. So that looks like an incredible move. Jeff Petrie for a fourth-round pick. Jeff Petrie we're talking about. Another great move. So the body of work is there. I mean, even, look, the Pacioretty deal, I'd still rather Pacioretty. But to Jar Suzuki in a, in a first-round pick, or excuse me, second-round pick, I mean, that's nothing to scoff at either, right? So as far as his body of work, where, where do you land with Mark Bergevin? Is he, has he won some brownie points with you? Or are you still unsure as to the identity of this team moving forward? Well, I think uh, you laid it all out very, very well. And I, uh, the one trade I'll comment there is I was completely with you on the P.K. Subban deal. And, and I don't know. I, I wonder whether they saw something in him that was not sustainable. Because P.K.'s kind of decline into irrelevance at a time where he should still be, you know, at the back end, at least of his prime, has been pretty remarkable and inexplicable. Maybe I haven't watched enough Nashville games to know. But it seems like they, they got out at the right time. They sold very high on him, clearly. Uh, even uh, with some of the uh, off-ice clashes that were happening. Uh, they got amazing return for it. Uh, but I think that maybe the other move, Joe, that you didn't mention that I think you got to credit Bergerman for is making the coaching change. You know, bringing in Dominic Ducharme and uh, getting rid of Claude Julien uh, partway through the year. And and uh, what a difference that's made. And, and knowing having the finger on the pulse of the team enough to, to know when to make that change, um, you got to think was integral to them getting as far as they, they have. So, I mean, credit to, to Bergerman for that. Um, I think that he's um, a creative and aggressive general manager. I even look at some of the failed uh, deals, like the attempt to sign Aho to that humongous uh, qualifying offer, or not qualifying offer. Uh, offer sheet, yes. Offer sheet, yes. Um, and I yeah. think that that, you know, it got matched ultimately by Carolina. But you look at what Aho's turned into, would have been a good deal, probably would have been worth the draft compensation that they, they would have given up. So smart, strong, aggressive move that a lot of people won't do. And a, and a, a big reason a lot of uh, general managers won't do it is because they have their little kind of boys club where they all kind of are nice to each other, right? And Brian Burke, remember how mad he got uh, at, uh, who was it, Murray in Anaheim at the time, who, who signed uh, Dustin Penner to an offer sheet about 15 years ago? Yes. Like, we never see those anymore. And there's a good reason. So I kind of like Bergevin as, as far as a guy who's got his finger on the team's pulse, 
who's not afraid to be aggressive and ruffle some feathers and do what he needs for his team. And he takes swings and he misses sometimes, but he's taking chances. So, uh, and also just got to say like his style, you know, he's the best. Oh, dude, the best league. dresser. Oh so, my gosh. The best dresser. Absolutely. Like and you know what? His celebration after they beat Vegas was so genuine. And I loved that. That really, really hit me in a, in a heartfelt spot. I was actually genuinely happy for that man. Cause you could tell he's just been through the absolute kitchen sink with this organization, with this fan base. But listen, uh, give credit to Jeff Molson for sticking by his guy as well. I mean, Bergman has been there nine years, right? As, as, uh, our lovely friend David Stein has pointed out to me on previous podcasts. He's been there nine years, and people were getting impatient, right? But yeah. we forget where he took over this team, at what point they were at. And I think a lot of people were in denial as to where this team was when Bergevin took over in 2012, you know? So I think he's done a great job turning it around. They are younger now. Uh, there are some bad contracts, but I think those are things that can be dealt with. Uh, but you're already seeing the veterans of this team uh, already saying they want to come back. They want to come back. They're ready to go. Guys like Paul Byron, Corey Perry, Eric Stahl are saying they want to be back with Montreal. So there seems to be something cooking over there. And we'll see what happens next season. But, I mean, that's absolutely incredible that they've created such a positive uh, atmosphere in, in that locker room, finally. Yeah, and, uh, and I mean, one thing I was going to say that actually occurred to me is with both of these teams, um, both Montreal and Tampa, that some of the patience actually has really paid off because not only sticking with Bergevin on the Montreal side, but, you know, you got to say that John Cooper has been seriously on the hot seat at different times in Tampa Bay before, too. Right, They missed the playoffs in 2016-17, and then they got swept by Columbus just a couple of years later, and the expectations have been sky high that whole time. And uh, there was lots of thoughts about moving on from John Cooper. In fact, I expected it at one point, um, and, uh, and they stuck with him, and obviously it paid off in spades. So it, it, the two teams kind of parallel each other in that you know what Montreal did to get over the top was get rid of a historically successful, very well liked in a broader sense, uh, coach and Claude Julia, uh, Tampa Bay parted ways with a very popular general manager and Steve Eiserman a few years ago, just before they really got to the, to the top. So it's kind of been some, uh, some very good decision-making behind the scenes, making one tough change, making the tough call to stick with another guy and, uh, and both teams, I guess maybe ownership gets some credit on both sides because they, they've made all the right moves behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, quick little trivia for you. Who are the most recent interim head coaches that either made an appearance or won a Stanley Cup for their respective teams? I will also give you the right, uh, the thumbs up if you guess the teams. Is it uh, Dan Bilesma in Pittsburgh? That's one of them. Who's the other one in recent memory? Oh, uh, last year, um, Dallas. Yes. Uh, what's his name? whose name I always forget. I have a mental block of the Dallas Stars coach. Uh, Jim Nail is the general manager. Yep, you're almost there. It's not 
Come on, how could you forget this guy? He's got Rick, the coolest Rick, hair. Rick Bonus. Rick, Rick bonus. bonus. There you go. Rick Bonus. Yeah, Frig. Jeez. Yeah. Rick I Bonus. A, yeah. I have a mental block for. But yeah, those two. Are those the only two recent ones? Because those are the two that jumped. Uh, well, most like absolutely recent. Uh, Mike Sullivan wasn't interim, but he won the year after he took over as head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the LA Kings, same story. Daryl Sutter took over Terry Murray uh, midway through right. 2011, and then yep. they won the 2012 and 14 Stanley Cups, respectively. It happens way more in hockey than people think. Actually, no, one more. Um, there's one more. Can we, can you guess who what who it is? In recent history, yes. This the last three or four seasons, actually. Really, Stanley. Cup. Yeah, this one kind of falls under the radar. Because this team kind of falls under the radar all the time. Hmm. Recent Stanley Cup Finals. You know With what I gotta say? Replacement coach winning. Bad, bad radio here. Uh, was it Bruce Cass? No. No. Nope. Uh, no. <clears throat> shoot. Bad, I will give you a background radio. if you like. Okay. From 2011 to 2017, Ken Hitchcock was the head coach of this team. Okay. Our lovely Ken uh, Hitchcock. Yeah, okay. Are we talking uh, Philly then? Nope. Oh, I'm thinking old school Ken Hitchcock. Uh, That's like when we were kids, Ken Hitchcock. No. Yeah. Oh, it's T- not. Tell me Peter. when you throw the white flag or if you want to keep guessing. Not uh, Peter Laviolette in Nashville, was it? No, no. They didn't win in Nashville. Uh, all right, I throw the white flag. What do you got? Midway through the 2018 season, Craig Berube replaces Mike Yo of the St. Louis Blues, and they go on to win the Stanley Cup. That is the only other one. Of course, of course. That's but that always happen. flies under the radar because St. Louis just falls under the radar. I find in general. So that's true. That's true. Yeah. No, that was uh, that sounded that was kind of a strange season. But I mean, what hasn't been a strange season lately? But every uh, season's been a strange yeah. season. I got news for you. Of course. All right. So before we go to break, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Okay. So we're gonna do a little uh, a little diagnosis here of their situation. The Tampa Bay Lightning are going to be a full uh, $13.6 million over the cap going into the offseason. There's some people that they're going to have to not bring back, including Luke Shen, David Savard, and quite possibly Cal Foote, their young defensive prospect. Anders Nielsen, backup goalie, is on the long-term IR at $2.6 million. But at an $11.9 million over the cap after the names I mentioned, guys like Tyler Johnson going to get moved? Guys like Ryan McDonough, five years, 6.75? Who is this team going to have to lose going into next year, in your mind, to keep their run going? McDonough is the kind of guy you want on a winning team, and I just love his shot blocking and uh, and IQ and all of that, but he to me like that's that's exactly where I was going to start is the, the most expendable probably because you look at a guy like Sergachev who's like basically on the the bottom pair for most of the playoffs and 
he's a guy who who could definitely I think take on a bigger role and uh, still young enough he could grow into it and develop more people uh, more uh, more skills uh, as well. So I think that uh, that he is probably target number one. However, I mean when McDonough was traded there in the first place, his value was was quite low. So I'm not exactly sure. Uh, who else will pay much for him? It might be more of just kind of getting rid of the guy than anything. Um, but then again, we've seen this team, you know, having to shed salary before. They got a first-round pick for JT Miller, right? And, I mean, that's sort of worked out both ways, but that's awfully good value for a team that, that obviously had to, to shed people. But uh, I think that you're kind of looking at, you, you know, you can't touch the very top guys. But as far as the other ones that are being paid, I hope they, they don't part ways with Palat because, to me, he's one of the most fun players to watch out there. Um, but as they peruse the roster, honestly, Joe, I think you, you nailed the, the two that you'd probably look at. Tyler Johnson, decidedly expendable. And McDonough, you're, you're going to hate to lose. But uh, if you have to cut salary, I mean, he's such a big chunk of it on his own. I think that seems pretty likely. Some other notable names. Alex Kalorn has two years left on his deal at a $4.5 million price tag. Uh, and also Yanni Gord, four years left at 5.2. But of course, uh, I'm as big of a Yanni Gord fan as exists out there. Victor Hedman, as I mentioned before, is on the best contract in all of hockey. He makes under $8 million and is by far the best defenseman on planet Earth. So that is the contract of the entire league, I think, is the best. And Andre Vasilevsky makes less than $10 million a year for the next seven years. He's locked up for the foreseeable future. But, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, those are the two names I think I look at. And that right there makes up for almost $12 million in cap space. So uh, I well, think that'll be enough for them. The only argument to get rid of someone else, I mean, those are the two names where you're, you're really not going to get much of a return. But, I mean, the strategy they went with, with you know, a Miller before is a valuable guy who, who got them a first-round pick. So uh, I, I'm with you that Gord would be tough to move, but I think somebody would give quite an asset. He's also an expiring deal in the, in the same neighborhood. Whereas I think Tyler Johnson, anyway, you're not getting a thing for. And McDonough... I don't know. You probably, you, maybe you get something, but he's still useful, but he's certainly not what he was, and uh, that contract's not super friendly. A 32-year-old defenseman with five years left at a high price tag. Yeah. I think Tampa would have to pay to get rid of Ryan Ooh. McDonough, and I also think they would have to pay to get rid of Tyler Johnson. I think anybody who makes those deals with Tampa Bay would take the Mark Stahl to Detroit approach, which is basically the Rangers gave Detroit a second-round pick to take Mark Stahl's $6 million price tag at 35 years of age. Now, McDonough is not quite that bad, but I can see Tampa trading McDonough and a fourth-round pick to get him elsewhere, or a third-round pick. Same with Tyler Johnson. Um, yeah. You know, Tyler Johnson was actually much maligned by a lot of hockey pundits and the Tampa organization going into this playoffs. Of course, he had a great postseason, but nobody really saw it coming. Uh, anyway... Yeah. Sorry to cut you off there, my friend. Yeah, we're going to go to break. Um, but hold that thought and, and, and say it when we get back uh, from break. We'll be back. Oh! 
Super Bowl. The hand is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. And we're back. I cut our beloved Toby Kerr off before the break, but uh, uh, your thoughts on McDonough, my friend? Well, yeah, this is why you're the host. So you got to make the tough decisions. Um, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah, I, I was kind of, I completely forgot it was five years left for 32-year-old Ryan McDonough. So five years changes that contract completely. Maybe not bad for next year, but uh, whew, three, four years down the line, you don't want to be saddled with that. So I think you're absolutely right. For both of those guys, Tampa will have to, to probably package a pick to get rid of them. But when they are where they are, who cares about prospects? So I think that that's, uh, that's something they'd definitely be willing to do. Absolutely. Um, my beloved listeners, we were going to do a mailbag today, but I would think I would be giving our co-host enough time to talk about our topics if we do a mailbag. So I apologize, but please, next week, I promise we will give you a mailbag. Uh, just remember to contribute. On our website, www.sixmansports.com, your name and where you're from. Please don't forget to say where you're from, uh, if you're proud of it, your email, and in the subject heading or in the uh, body heading, your full question. Uh, We love your mailbag questions, and we will continue to deliver them to you uh, as often as we can. Please like, rate, and review our show. Unsubscribe, resubscribe, all that jazz on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We are available on most platforms where you do get your podcasts, so please be sure to check us out. Uh, and our Instagram page, at the six pod, T-H-E, the number six, I-X-P-O-D on Instagram. Um, and we're back. So... The NBA Finals, I, I, we haven't really been talking about basketball, and I think it's been a byproduct of the fact that uh, LeBron James is not in an NBA Final uh, for only the second time in the last 12 years, or 13 years, excuse me, which is pretty bananas in itself. Um, the Brooklyn Nets had a lot of injuries, so the team we expected to be representing the Eastern Conference is not in it. But some storylines in this NBA postseason – Um, I want to go over quickly with you, kind of like rapid fire, that I think I've absolutely loved. Um, The Giannis Antetokounmpo arc storyline, the 10 seconds at the free throw line, where Mm -hmm. opposing teams fans are literally counting him down and letting him take his time to shoot free throws um, with the Milwaukee Bucks. Have you seen a transformation in this Bucks team that made the final or... Are you of the camp that if Brooklyn was healthy, we wouldn't even be having this conversation? Oh, I think that if either of Kevin Durant's two co-superstars is healthy, we don't have this conversation. I I, I really think that actually we haven't seen the Milwaukee Bucks play at their best this whole playoffs. I think they've made it here in spite of how they've played. And and I really think that uh, they, they show flashes, right? They have all the talent and upside in the world. But I'm so disappointed, Joe, in my guy, Drew Holiday, because I love Drew Holiday. He is one of my favorite non-Raptors in the league. He's so good defensively. Like, he can guard one through five. 
he and Ben Simmons, I think, are clearly the best two defensive point guards in basketball, and it's not even close. Um, but on the offensive end, man, he's not getting it done. He's not the difference maker in these finals, and he's only inconsistently been throughout the playoffs that I really thought he was going to be. Uh, some of the decision-making also, you can see him kind of getting his own head at times, and the decision-making goes out the window. He just kind of loses it for stretches in a way that I didn't think he would. Um, but obviously he hasn't quite been on this stage yet, so perhaps that's why. But to me, Joe, I thought that the move to upgrade from Bledsoe to Holiday would make a massive difference, and I think it did during the regular season. Uh, but right now, it's uh, Giannis, you know, in Game 2, what we didn't know. You know, when he went down, I thought his season could be done. I thought it could be multiple torn ligaments that we might not see him next season even, you know. And instead, he's playing unbelievably well, and then getting no help from Chris Middleton, because Chris Middleton is unbelievable at home and and kind of disappears on the road and that's what he's done the whole regular season too and drew holiday is is a far cry from what he should be like i think the bucks win game two if either of those guys has a decent game and neither of them does and they weirdly seem to miss dante divincenzo more than i would have thought joe it seems like they need an extra guy in the rotation like pat connaughton has been okay at times but he gets exposed defensively Bryn forbes is the same and he gets killed defensively the 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 Suns go just target him like crazy whenever he's out there so I feel like Milwaukee is like a guy short right now and Phoenix has this deeper long rotation where they have these big big guards and Crowder and Bridges and Cam Johnson who who just create size problems for Milwaukee because they either have to go too big getting you know PJ Tucker and Brooke Lopez out there and Bobby Portis or sometimes they have to go too small with the Connaughton and Forbes. They just can't quite match up with them. So I think that Giannis has been incredibly impressive. Well, game two when he was back, at least. And if he can keep that up, he just needs one of those other guys to step up. But but right now, Phoenix just looks like a more complete team. And I think they're, frankly, playing smarter basketball. They're targeting Milwaukee's weaknesses. They're, they're, they're outplaying them strategically. I think Monty Williams is out coaching Coach Bud in Milwaukee. And... Uh, and so far, I'm not surprised it's two games to nothing. But I also think that the Bucks' upside is actually higher. And if we see them click at home, I wouldn't be surprised at all, Joe, if they even it up and, and send it back to Phoenix or, or make it 2-2 anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm oddly with you on the matchup problems. I look at this Milwaukee Bucks team, and yes, I think if Brooklyn is healthy, we're not having this conversation. Brooklyn exposed with their weaker players, a lot of Milwaukee's defensive liabilities, on top of the fact that Mike Dudenholzer refuses to make any adjustments. I find it completely fascinating that a guy that literally makes zero adjustments in-game, it feels like, is coaching an NBA Finals team. It, it blows my mind. I mean, of course, the year the Milwaukee Bucks general manager wins general manager of the year over Masai Ujiri, after Raptors win an NBA title, I mean, give me a break. Um, a lot of this Milwaukee team, I think, has way too much uh, hype around them. I think there's way too much respect given to them. And and this is a team that is one of the worst in the entire postseason at defending the pick and roll. And who do you think is the best executor of the pick and roll in the modern era of basketball? And that is number three, Chris Paul. The god of point. The god of everything basketball. And you know what? Um, my favorite storyline of this postseason is after 16 seasons in the NBA, after being blamed for all of his team's shortcomings, including the fallout with James Harden, 
when clearly James Harden was the problem in Houston and not Chris Paul. Um, he is now in the NBA finals with his first coach, Monty Williams, with a young core in Aiton, Booker, Bridges, and Johnson, and being a leader to them. And, and I will actually be surprised if this final series goes further than five games. I would be very wow. sure. Wow. I mean, I, I think uh, I don't disagree with anything you said. And I think Chris Paul has probably established himself as, himself as one of the great leaders, not only in basketball, but in sports. I mean, he kind of knew that already. He's been the head of the NBA PA for, for however long, seven, eight years at least. Um, and so that shows the respect he has around the league. But yes, the way that he's accelerated this team's growth and, and timeline and leadership. And then you just see him like he's just playing on a different level on the court, right? Like he sees things nobody else sees. He takes advantage. He, he finds the weaknesses and he just attacks every Milwaukee weakness. And they're not quite deep enough to never, they always have a weakness on the floor is, is sort of my point. And they just go out there and, and, you know, they throw at their guys, Milwaukee and they're big and they're talented and that keeps them in the game. But Phoenix is, is just playing so smart. And it, to me, it entirely starts from Paul that even though Devin Booker actually hasn't shot very well the last couple of games, right? These have been very comfortable wins, Joe, you know, especially game two, Milwaukee hung around. Like they never really let Phoenix completely pull away, but the Suns were in control start to finish of both of these. So yeah. it just, it, it makes it hard for me to see them losing at home, especially with that bonkers crowd that you kind of touched on off the top, but man, are they fun. Uh, but, but that said, I think I have a little more confidence than you in Milwaukee actually coming out at home and and i wouldn't be surprised if the series goes beyond five and that it's really you know the first team that wins a road game who really has uh, the stranglehold on it i hope you're right because nobody likes a short final series of course we saw that in 2017 and 18 when kevin durant effectively ruined basketball for a couple of years but i look at i look at this series and i just everything you said about the matchups glares in my head it just glares. I can't get it out of it. It's something I can't get past in, in evaluating the Milwaukee Bucks. I don't think they can handle the Suns team defensively. And I don't think on offense they will be able to keep up. I think DeAndre Ayton is having one of the best career postseason performances from a big man. The guy's shooting over 70% on average. I mean, he's doing wild things. He's rebounding very efficiently. He's all over the court. Uh, and that high pick and roll, Brooke Lopez and Bobby Portis are getting left out to dry. They are non-factors defensively. Whereas you saw against Brooklyn, Brooke Lopez blocked Kevin Durant in one of the most pivotal drives of the game. So he was still a factor defensively. I think the way the Suns are coached and, and the fact that, again, Mike Budenholzer just doesn't make adjustments or if he does, they're never on time. I don't know. I don't see this being a good result for the Phoenix Suns, or excuse me, the Milwaukee Bucks uh, over the Phoenix well, Suns. And you know what? Chris Paul, you, you see it in his eyes, man. He wants this. And this is this is his, I think, uh, to lose coming tomorrow, July 11th. This is the game. Obviously, if they win tomorrow, the Suns, nobody's giving Milwaukee a chance in all hell to come back down 3 nothing. Yeah, but I, I mean, okay, let me make the counter-argument for Milwaukee. And I think it really starts with Chris Middleton because he has been a shadow of himself in the first two games, uh, especially game two. And the three-point shooting from the Milwaukee as a team has been horrible. 
way below what they should be doing, way below their expected output there. So if the overall three-point shooting stabilizes, if Drew Holiday can just calm down and get used to the bright lights of it, and if Chris Middleton is just Chris Middleton, who is a guy who can be, like the term is now more in vogue, and I've been using it for a while, like an NBA, like a closer, right? Like a Jimmy Butler, a Kawhi, or whatever. I have some confidence that Chris Middleton can be that guy. And so I think that if, if uh, the, the, the second and third best players on Milwaukee just play average, average, and, and you get some, con- some more uh, great contributions from Giannis if he actually is healthy enough on that knee to keep doing not 42 points necessarily every game, but to, to be the force that he can be. I mean, there's the one bucket, I think it was in game one actually, where he just kind of pushed DeAndre Ayton under the basket, who is phenomenal on both ends this postseason. But Giannis is a lot better than DeAndre Ayton. Can we just say that? No matter how good Ayton is. Well, yes, of course. He just shoved him under the basket, just bodied him under on one knee and slammed it down. If we get more of that type of Giannis, not pull-up three-point shooting Giannis, like, they can do it, Joe. Like, this is what frustrates me about the coaching. Like, they have the pieces. I actually think Phoenix is deeper, but Milwaukee is really more talented at the top end. They still are. Um, and so I, I, I think that home Chris Middleton is such a different guy that there's a very I, – I, I would pick actually them to split at home in Milwaukee, you know, if I really have to. But I'd lean more towards the Bucks being likely to take two at home than Phoenix coming in and sweeping them because I, I, I do think there's – I think there's another level to this Bucks offense, man. And it, 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 starts, it starts with Drew Holiday and it ends with Chris Middleton, I think. And, and those guys both have the ability to be so much better than they are. What a wildly frustrating postseason it would be if if they kind of flame out playing the way that they have been these first two games. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're onto something there. Um, we're going to switch gears though because uh, the Blue Jays made some moves and we got to talk about them. Uh, it's been a couple days since the last one was made, but before that, um, Marcus Simeon is on pace for 40 home runs. Is that like the best signing this offseason of any team? I, I am just enamored with how this guy is playing. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's a, this is a good question. Who are any other free agents that, like Lance Lynn with the White Sox? That's pretty good signing, too. Um, maybe that's about the only thing I can think of. But uh, yeah, man, I, I mean, you and I have talked about, I think we've both been on the extension bandwagon for a long time. But oh my God, is that number going to be scary? whatever Semyon's going to command on the open market now. He's he's blown away all possible expectations offensively, defensively, justifiably the starting all-star second baseman for the Jays. But, man, Joe, somebody's given him a, well, a contract well over $100 million in the offseason. And the Jays have the resources to do it. I hope so. But uh, whew, I don't think they're going man. to, though. I don't want to bury he's, the lead. but uh, He's perfect, I don't though. think this guy he's will be a Blue Jay. Is. He's perfect. Oh, I know. He's, he's wonderful. He's absolutely wonderful. I think, and you know what I love about Marcus Simeon and, and what former teammates have said about Marcus Simeon is the work ethic is just bananas. The guy watches insane amounts of video. He is, instead of hanging in the clubhouse on the diamond, taking ground balls, throwing ground balls, constantly working at his craft. I mean, that's the guy you want on your team. I know that's a cliche, but that's the guy you want. He's going to set the example for the young guys and he's going to earn the respect of the older guys. I mean, even though he is one of the vets, but how can you not have a guy like that on your team? It's so infectious. You know, that attitude is so infectious. I find of course, in a good way, you know, 
Yeah, and he's, I, I just I would give him 125 million in a heartbeat over five years. I wouldn't even blink. But at this point, I'm worried he might be more expensive than that because of how ridiculous he's been playing. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems very clear that the 60-game 2020 season was an aberration, and he's much he's the guy who was an MVP candidate two years ago, too. And I hate to be this guy, a little negative, it's pretty early, but do you maybe think some Jays fans are wondering if that Springer money might have been better spent if we saved it for Semyon to sign him long I, I don't know about that. I mean, It's so early, but the thought has to enter <sighs> your mind, right? Right? Especially that's hindsight, though. Seem to have. I know, That's revisionist I history. I mean, you don't want to look at it like that. We didn't know Simeon was a Blue Jay until after Springer was signed, so you can't even think like that. It's true, but I'm just saying, if if, if it comes down to one or the other, who, who would you rather have long-term? I think before the season, it would have been a contest. Everyone would have said, good, we locked up Springer, and sure, let's take the chance on Simeon. I think a lot of Jays fans wish it was the other way around right now. Maybe, maybe. but I do. To be fair to George Springer... Uh, George Springer won a World Series MVP and led all outfielders in war since 2011. So um, I do respect what Marcus has done, and I absolutely adore Marcus Semien. But George Springer will regress to his mean of being a much better baseball player and uh, not have 18 strikeouts in his first 60 at-bats and be the guy we know as George Springer. I think the Blue Jays – this is the next question I have for you because – I think the Blue Jays are doing Springer a disservice, putting him in the cleanup spot and should move him back to the leadoff spot. But do you do that and risk upsetting Marcus Simeon? Is that even a discussion you have? Where where are you on that? Because I think the Blue Jays are in a weird spot with this batting order. Um, and, And I don't know, like maybe if you put Springer in the leadoff spot, then I think you've sent the message to... Simeon, that you don't even know if you're going to be able to afford him the next year, or am I overlooking, or am I looking too much into that as far as the batting order is concerned? Am I blowing it out of proportion? Yeah, it's an interesting point because Springer uh, has hit leadoff so consistently for so long and seemed to thrive there versus other roles. But I don't know, man. I think if you're George Springer, or if you're the Jays to George Springer, you say, you know, be a professional, figure out a way to start hitting wherever we put you in the lineup because. The, the run creation out of the top three has just been incredible, and that's the, been one really consistent part of the Jays' season is the batting order, you know? Charlie Montoyo, old school in a lot of ways. A lot of ways I don't like, but I think that, you know, the consistency of the batting order has really paid off, and all three of those guys, Semi and Bichette Guerrero, are, are thriving in their roles, and they're, they're scoring runs, and they're scoring runs early in games. Uh, I, I really, really would be against moving Springer up to that position right now because, I mean, even at the, the best possible scenario for Springer, I don't think you get better production than you're getting from Semyon at the top of the lineup. And Semyon's wheels look like a lot better than Springer right now. So, yeah, I, I definitely don't mess with it. And I think Springer's just got to figure it out wherever he hits. And, and I think he should. He's a good enough hitter. He should. I agree. I think it's safe to tell the guy you've given $150 million to already to say, listen, um, please do this for us at least for this year. And if we can't come to a deal with Simeon or whatever, we'll move you back to the leadoff spot. Or, hey, if Simeon starts struggling, we'll move you up there. But I don't think George Springer is the kind of guy that would really put up a big stink about this. I'm just thinking out loud in general. It feels like a little bit of a disservice 
uh, to George Springer to not hit him in the leadoff spot. But uh, like I said, this is this is the offseason of Marcus Samian. He bet on himself, and I think he was great in doing so. And uh, wherever he ends up, man, like this, just this guy feels like a New York Yankee to me, and I hate that thought. I hate it so much. But I'll tell you what. I, I always circle back to this and what the Blue Jays need and where they're at. But if I if I can get a Davy Garcia and a young bullpen arm from the Yankees for Marcus Simeon, I think I do it. So it's just it, it's a tough situation all around. I get it. But if this guy's not going to commit to you for for less than twenty twenty six twenty five million a year. Even though the Blue Jays may have the resources, do you give a guy like that a, a twenty thirty million dollar a year contract for five years, like five one fifty, or a George Springer type contract, a six one fifty? Um, I don't know if you do that because you haven't paid Bichette yet, you haven't paid Guerrero yet. Uh, Alec Manoa is going to make some money in his career, so I don't know. I know the team has nobody committed to them after twenty twenty three other than Randall Gritchard and George Springer, but it just feels like a lot of money to me if for a guy who's what, thirty years old already in Samuel? Thirty one? Yeah, in that ballpark. Um I uh it's a good question. I mean the the thing that's so tough for these discussions, Joe, is uh with baseball not having a salary cap, right? We don't really know what the budget is. So in theory, it's like, yeah, who cares? It's Rogers' money. Let's let's spend it all. Let's keep them all, you know. And uh, and they've shown the willingness in contention windows to spend quite a bit of money before. So um, I don't think it's necessarily <clears throat> ruled out from being a possibility. But I certainly think the Jays didn't plan on signing him to a long-term deal. It's certainly nowhere near that figure. But I think somebody will. It would be devastating if it was in the division and uh, he just comes back to haunt the Blue Jays for many years. Uh, and it's not, you know, the greatest need in the world position. I mean, it is for this year, but you'd think theoretically you could find another middle infielder who could do something for you. Uh, I, I really hope they do it, Joe. Uh, I will be surprised if they do what you're kind of suggesting and trade him before the end of this year. I think they're close enough to competing. You at least ride it out this season with him. Um, but ultimately I would expect, I would expect sadly that he walks and that it's going to be tough and it's going to haunt us for a while. Yeah, I, I, Again, this is a guy I got to move at the deadline. I'm not letting this guy go for nothing. Absolutely not. And I just want to prepare everybody listening. There's a very good chance that Marcus Simeon gets traded this deadline. I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a big possibility. This team is only 44 and 41 right now, and by all accounts, I don't expect a big blockbuster move to get pitching here. Even though I think the perfect move for them is going after a, a Sandy Alcantara type uh, in Miami. But, I mean, look, it's still July 11th. There's 20 days to go in this month um, for the Blue Jays to make some moves. But right now, if, if there's no extension talks ongoing with Simeon and Shapiro and Atkins don't think they can retain him, then they're not letting him go for nothing. Absolutely not. And that would be horrible if they did. You know, even though he brings value this season, if you let him go, losing him to possibly a division rival is, is really not ideal. So they're nine games back of the division lead. 
uh, the Blue Jays are. And they're three and a half games back of a wild card spot right now, somehow trailing the 47 and 42 Seattle Mariners. A lot of weird records in baseball right now. Rowdy Tella is shipped to Milwaukee for Trevor Richards. Um, and of course, Joe Panic in the Marlins deal we talked about last week for Corey Dickerson and Adam Simber. These are the moves I feel like this team is going to make at the deadline. But um, incremental that- upgrades and raising the floor of the bullpen as best they can. But aren't those, see, I read those moves as indicative of like the early signs of a buyer that they are going to buy and that these are kind of the cheap precursor moves and that if the team is within striking distance, they're likely going to make a bigger splash. Uh, I I think that this is uh, pointing to them likely being less and less likely to sell. Um, So I think that also if you look at, yeah, chasing Seattle, do I expect them to be up there for very long? I do not. And they're within striking distance of Oakland. You've got the Red Sox leading the division, who I don't think they're frauds necessarily, but I think their starting pitching is so bad. You mean you could say some of the same about the Jays, but our, uh, you know, Toronto's starting pitching has come around a bit. The Red Sox are winning in spite of their starting pitching, and I just don't think it's sustainable. So I think that uh, I'm actually disagreeing on with you on this one. I, I'd be floored if they sell them at the deadline at this point, and I think they're much more likely to, to be buyers. Well, not, not, you can't look at that as a sell. You look at that as maximizing what you can for it's the asset sell. instead of losing him for nothing. I understand it is a sell, but if I'm going to get a young, controllable pitcher for the next three years out of it, then maybe I do it. That's all I'm saying. Like, it's, a, you know, a Max Fried, a Davey Garcia. Uh, that's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a prospect that hasn't pitched in the major leagues yet. You know, right. I mean, even well, uh, even a Freddie Peralta type. Like, this is what I'm talking about. Uh, Herman Marquez over in Colorado. But I just say this with with the point of of saying that this Blue Jay team is still far away from where they want to be. Uh, I do like the moves they made and Simber and Richards and, of course, Dickerson as a bench back. I like where this team is going, but this is not a finished product yet. Absolutely not. And after, you know, they're losing to Tampa Bay right now, 42, uh, in Tampa today, July 10. I just don't know what this team is going to be at the deadline. I think they're going to look at their record and determine where they're going to lead off or leave off, excuse me. And that's those are the moves they're going to make accordingly. But does this front office really give you the notion that they're going to make that kind of splash? That's all I'm saying. I don't know if we see an eye on that. And I don't think this is a front office that's going to make a splash this year. I, I think, if anything, the splash comes in the offseason or next year. Could be. And I think the logic that you're peddling is is sound for sure as far as like getting max value. But I just I, I just don't see it. I think that if, if they do anything, it's going to be to buy. And that getting rid of Semyon, even if it does make sense to stock up for the long term, uh, it's a it's a selling type of move, and I just I would be very surprised if it happens. Well, as always, a pleasure having you on this program, and always we appreciate it. Uh, Producer Jake, the Dirk Nowitzki of our podcast, uh, General Tech Automotive, and the Bull Barbecue Pit on St. Clair. We thank you for your continued support. Uh, we will be back next week. You guys have yourselves a fantastic rest of your weekend and uh 
Let's go Blue Jays. 